That brings us to the next section, the conquest of the promised land. We spent a lot of time on the garden because, like I said, that's the template. That's the foundation. If you don't get the foundation right, then the house crumbles and falls apart. Or you don't know how the house supposed to fit into the foundation. If you've got this loppy, disoriented, discombobulated foundation, you're like, so where do I put this wall again? And I think that's why we struggle with connecting a lot of dots in the Bible is because our foundation is not clearly laid out in our mind. God's, sorry, God's foundation is not clearly laid out in our minds. So when we get to other passages in the Bible, we don't know how to place them in. Now, once again, I'm not arguing that this is the best job that anybody can do in laying this all out. This is just my best job at this point in my life. Then the family of Abraham is very important. We went a little bit faster through that part, but still spent some time because you need to see how God operates with the family. You need to see how God is at work in a family that is capable of being obedient and righteous, but still is horribly dysfunctional, messed up, and selfish, and all that kind of stuff. And that's where you see, now you know what is intended. And so you can see that in Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Judah and Joseph's life. But now we've also seen how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God through Cain and the flood and the Tower of Babel and the fall of Adam and Eve. And now you can see that in the family. Now you see how God deals with people who have both. People who still have a memory of the garden and are living righteously, but at the same time they have the serpent inside of them, so to speak, chaos, and they're not obeying God. And now we need that's where we see the character of God. Uh, So we see the God who loves and pursues and forgives, but yet is still just and holds them accountable. And so that's why the Bible spends so much longer on that family than any other family in the Bible. Because that's your first introduction to a God, a father, in a fallen world. And so that was important to see, his character. Now it's important to spend a lot of time in Exodus, because now this is where you see the God as the ultimate deliverer out of slavery and then God forms them as a nation and adopts them and gives them the law so now you see how what God expects of us in a fallen world this starts becoming the blueprint to get us back to the garden and so you need to understand the exodus and the law as well because this is where you say okay we don't have the garden anymore but we have a memory of it but most of the time we're seeing fallen abusive um, fallen defiled people dysfunctional people and we've seen this gracious awesome God who works in the middle of them but what is he doing to get us back to the garden and that's what the exodus and the mosaic law becomes a template of not here's what the template looks like the garden but now here's the template of getting us back to the garden and so these three things are the most important foundational stones what God intended how God works with fallen people who still have the image of God left in them, and what is God's blueprint that gets back to what he intended. Now that we have that, now it's just supply. You've got your equation, plug the number in, and crank. And that's what we're going to do. You're just going to keep seeing these three things over and over again. Garden, God working with fallen, yet image of God people, and God then executing and developing his plan to get us back to the garden more and more and more. And all we're going to do is take those three things and apply to Joshua, apply to Judges, apply to Samuel, apply to Kings. And then once we practice that a lot, like doing math or grammar or whatever, 
Then we get to the prophets, and the prophets say, now let's take all those applying and put it together in a big, giant equation that will help perform this beautiful, amazing fractal that you would never have been able to do if you didn't understand all the fundamentals, and the fractal is going to be the face of Jesus. And then now that you know what Jesus looks like, we can now begin to look for him when the Gospels come. That's kind of my summary of the Bible. I don't know if that's a great analogy, but that's the best I've got. This is the idea that's coming. So the conquest of the promised land. Joshua succeeded Moses as the leader of the people of Israel, and he led them into the promised land. Now, some people have seen the similarities that just like Moses was a prophet that brought the law and forgiveness and the sacrificial system, and Joshua was the warrior who conquered the evil of the promised land. So the first coming of Jesus is him as the lawgiver, the, mount, the Sermon on the Mount, and the sacrificial lamb who brings the forgiveness and mercy of God. And the second coming of Christ is Joshua, the conqueror, who comes and destroys evil and the world. And so these are the two parts of Christ here. Now, the Canaanites have become horribly evil in their idolatry, child sacrifices, sexual immorality, so that Yahweh's judgment was upon them with, his death, with their death. We're not going to get into how could God exterminate the Canaanites and why their sin was so evil that he destroyed them but not other nations. But there is a document on my website called The Extermination of the Canaanites you can go to. And if you go to the Joshua study, there's an audio where I actually go through that and explain it. This nation was so horribly evil and deprived. And they were so far away from God that they deserved to be killed under the penalty of the law. Yet even then, when a woman and her family like Rahab say, I want to be a part of this God and his covenant, the law was put aside for forgiveness and mercy and grace. Even this people that God said, you all have to die. He didn't actually really truly mean that. And the fullest literal applied to everybody without exception circumstances. Because Rahab is the proof of that. And so this woman of amazing faith comes to God and escapes the judgment of the Canaanites, the judgment of the law, and finds salvation. And this is the beauty. Now here's what's interesting. At the same time that Rahab, who does not know Yahweh, does not have the law, does not have the sacrificial system, is able to see the image of God enough in Israel that it's more attractive to her than anything that she saw in her own people, that she's willing to leave her people who are concrete for the abstract shadow of God and the covenant and life and mercy and Christ that she sees in Israel, and they're not even all that awesome. Just that shadow of Christ, that shadow of God, that she saw at a great distance was enough to pull her out of the concreteness of her family and nation into the covenant people of God. At the same time she's doing that, Achan, who has been raised in the covenant, seen all the glories of God, seen the miracles, experienced the law, knows it, and the sacrificial system is stealing the offerings of God from God. The very city and the spoils that were sacrificed to God as a thanks offering for giving them the land, Achan is stealing them and taking them. And so they become a contrast to each other. And what God is showing is, look, the people who you think are automatically in because they're biological descendants of Abraham are the ones who are horribly evil and need to die. Yet the people that you think are so horribly evil that they can never ever get in are the people showing faith. 
and experiencing the blessings of God. So don't think that just because you're a part of the nation, you're automatically saved. And don't think that just because they're out there, horrible, evil people who should go to hell, that there's no end for them. In fact, this is going to be a constant theme throughout the Bible. Not only were there foreigners who you think are totally not worthy compared to Israel are going to be brought in, and then not only are you going to see Israel, who should know better, who are going to mess up bigger than the foreigners, you're going to see that theme and over and over and over again. Not only are you going to see God, who constantly allows foreigners to come in over and over and over again, despite their fact that they're not descendants of Abraham, but you're also going to see the fact that the foreigners often appreciate who God is and desire him more than the people who've grown up in the covenant people of God. Just like we see today. When you grow up in it, unfortunately, it's easy to take it for granted. When you've experienced death and dysfunctionality your entire life and you see hope, you tend to appreciate it more. And this is the constant thing we're going to see. Yet, despite this, of Achan's sin, Israel is still the greatest, most faithful, sorry, Joshua's generation is the most faithful generation that Israel has ever had. And city by city by city, they trust God. And without hesitation, their, their parents hesitated and said, oh, that can't happen. And then they turned on God and accused him and complained to him. Complained him. Israel didn't. They did not hesitate when God said, put your foot in a raging river that will sweep you off into death as you're carrying this giant Ark of the Covenant that would take you down and drown you. But trust me, I'll stop this water. They stepped in. Go around this city like fools as a city could possibly jump arrows and fire and boiling feces on you, which is what they do in the ancient world. But that won't happen because I'm going to take care of you. They did not hesitate. They never accused God and they never blamed him. And they were faithful because they remembered like Moses told them to. Now, they weren't perfect. There were times where they didn't go to God like they're supposed to, and they made a treaty with a bunch of people they should have never made. There were times that they got a little cocky and said, oh, we can go conquer this city after the success we have and not trust God, and they got conquered and defeated. After the initial conquest of the land, Yahweh assigned each tribe its own land allotment in the promised land. And he gave to the priestly Levites cities scattered throughout the entire land. This land of Israel is to become the new Garden of Eden. Here Yahweh would dwell with Israel in the land. And if they were faithful to him, he would make it abundantly fruitful, a land of blessing. They were to then join Yahweh as his image in driving out the serpents, redeeming the land, making it a place of blessings, so that the nations would want to become a part of the covenant people of Yahweh by faith. Now, after the initial conquest, Yahweh said, stop. I've had you conquer all the major cities that need to be conquered, but what's left is the rural areas. I don't want you to conquer those areas. I don't want you to transform those areas yet. I'm going to say that for the next generation. And so at the very end of the book, actually the majority of the book of Joshua is him assigning land to all the different tribes. And so he assigns land to all the different tribes, and he finally is fulfilling his promise to Abraham that I will give you a land. The book of Joshua spends more chapters on God assigning land, and it's boring to us. God says, the tribe of Dan, you get the land between this tree and that river and that mountain and this stream, and da 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 And then he goes on to the next tribe. This tribe, you get it between this sea and that ocean and that lake. This, this is like an architecture dream, but this is so boring. Why is God spending so much detail and what does that apply? The point is, is that first God is showing you that the land that he promised them is a very concrete land. 
It's not an abstract, ethereal promise that he made to them. It's not a metaphor for some hope and peace in their life. It's a physical, concrete blessing as much as an abstract, spiritual blessing. So that when God promises you things, you know that like he intended the garden to be spiritual and physical, the blessings of God are ultimately going to be spiritual and physical. But the other thing he's telling you is by spending so much time giving you the borders, he's showing you that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. And the other thing is that the whole point of all this is the land. Yahweh, humans, together in the land of blessing. That's the whole point. It's always about the land. It's always about us with God in a land, physical and spiritual life with God. And he's showing you that this is the focus. He is bringing them back to the Garden of Eden. Just like the garden, the promised land is like a Garden of Eden too. Because in the land, he's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the blessings of the tree of life. He's going to dwell with them in the tabernacle, Yahweh walking in the garden. He's going to place them in it. And just like the garden that has a gate in the east and it has a border around it, Israel is surrounded by a sea that Israel never ever are seafarers ever. <laughs> it is surrounded by mountains. It is surrounded by a desert. And the only easy way in and out is the Jordan River, which is on the east. And above the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. And below it is the Dead Sea. And they almost form pillars to the gate in between it. And so in the east, there's a gate. And most of the time when Joshua comes in, Remember when Jacob, Jacob left going through the gate and he encountered angels, just like the angels of the Garden of Eden. And then when he came back into the Promised Land, he encountered angels again. The vision of the, the, the tower of the angels and the second time that vision of wrestling with angels. Joshua comes in through the gate, the Jordan River, and he encounters an angel, the captain of God's army. Over and over again, you're going to see that the main way that they go in and out is the Jordan River. Now, that's not the only way you can get in and out of Israel. It's the way that God uses most of the time because he's trying to paint the picture that this is the Garden of Eden. And I'm starting small with the tabernacle, bigger with the promised land, and then bigger all the way up to the Euphrates River, and then bigger the entire world. And that's the prophecy of the Messiah. He will take it to the entire world. To live outside the land was to be outside the blessings of Yahweh. And this is a reoccurring theme. That it's in the land that you have access to God. It's in the land that you have the blessings of God. That to be outside the land is to be outside the blessings of God. So when you walk out of the Garden of Eden, you lost the blessings of God because you lost your access and relationship to Yahweh. So the same thing as the Promised Land is the new Garden of Eden. And this is going to be ultimately seen when they rebel against God so greatly that he's going to kick them out of the promised land into exile under the Assyrians and Babylonians like he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. And they're going to be outside their relationship and access to God. And they're going to be outside the blessings of the land. Overall, they were faithful and they were obedient. However, there was one thing that this generation failed to do. They did a really good job of remembering who God was, but they failed to help their children remember. They, they knew who God was. They lived out their faithfulness to God, 
but they didn't teach their children. Deuteronomy also said, teach this to your children when they wake up and when they lie down. And when you eat the meals and you go along the roads, bind it to your foreheads and your arms and put it everywhere in the house and always tell them so that when your children say, why is that? You tell them about God. But they failed. They, they lived it out, but they did not pass it on. They just expected their children to naturally just pick it up, which that does not happen. They were not intentional. So the next generation failed miserably. Over time, Israel's faith began to drift from Yahweh, and they failed to destroy the Canaanites completely. Therefore, they became attracted to the Canaanites. They fell into their lifestyles. They fell into worshiping their gods. They fell into their immoral practices. As a result, Yahweh withdrew his blessings and protecting protection and allowed the pagan nations that they wanted to be like to oppress them. Yahweh honored their choice to worship the other gods who did not love them or protect them like he had. As a result of their oppression, they cried out to Yahweh to save them. In his compassion and mercy, he lifted up the judges to deliver them. This is the pattern. They will eventually get complacent, and they will see the people, and they will not destroy them. They will not be the image of God, and they will not subdue them. And then they will fall away from God. And then they will be attracted to their practices and their immoral practices. And so they will miss out on the blessings of God. And God will say, fine, you want to worship their gods and be like those people? Have them. You can have them. Oh, then your lives are going to be just like their lives. It's going to be miserable. And you're not going to be saved and delivered by their gods because their gods don't deliver and save them either. And then eventually the people cry out to God. And God in his love and mercy as a loving parent forgives them and brings them back and delivers them. And we see this, this cycle over and over again with six major judges. The first two judges, Othni and Yehud, they trusted Yahweh. And the minute God used them to deliver the people, they rose up in faith without hesitation and they delivered the people. But they were left over from the previous generation, just slightly removed. And Israel gave them peace for years to come. But over time, the judges began to decline in their faith. Barak, the third judge, said he would only obey Yahweh. If Yahweh allowed him to take the prophet, he put conditions on Yahweh and said, my faith is only good if you give me what I want. If you reward me, I'll obey. And God said, fine, because you're going that way. You're not going to get the reward. A woman's going to get the reward and she's going to be the victor and she's going to deliver the people. Then Gideon comes along. Gideon constantly questioned God. He constantly tested God over and over again, asking God to prove that he's actually capable and faithful enough enough to do this. And only when God proved himself would he obey. And then when he finally obeyed, after testing God so many times, he became full of power and corruption, and he began to oppress his own people, and he built new idols to replace the very ones that he destroyed. And he freed them from the oppression of the enemy, only to oppress them himself as a local dictator. That's not righteousness. Then Jephthah came along, and Jephthah declared that he would only worship Yahweh if Yahweh gave him victory in battle, just like Barak. The difference is this time he said, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my home, whatever it is, and ends up being his daughter. And he's so disconnected from Yahweh that he actually thinks Yahweh wants a child's sacrifice. You see, Barak knew God, but just wanted more. Gideon didn't really know God and constantly tested him, but knew enough about the stories that he kind of knew what God was like. Jephthah has no idea who God is. 
He's so disconnected that he thinks Yahweh is just another pagan god. They should offer child sacrifice to in order to get victories. And then Samson came along, and Samson's so disconnected from God that he just basically uses the power of God for his own selfish purposes. He's narcissistic, he's a sex addict, and he kills people when he doesn't get what he wants. But yet God uses these people anyways. He uses them despite all this flawed nature because he loves them. In the end, the people of Israel fell into a violent civil war that almost wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. To save Benjamin from extinction, the other tribes agreed to the kidnapping and forced marriage of hundreds of women. Israel begins to act like Son Gomorrah. An Israelite city violates this woman just like the Sodom and Gomorrah did, wanted to do. And so Israel goes to punish that city for the violation of a woman. And then they end up getting carried away and kill everybody in the tribe of Benjamin. And only one man was actually, only one city was guilty. But they end up slaughtering everybody as a result. And then in order to fix the problem that Benjamin is about ready to die out, they kidnap a bunch of women and force them into marriage with the Benjamites basically nationally approving of the sin that they actually set out to punish to begin with. And over and over again, at the end of Judges, it says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Because God ultimately shows this by the fact that Israel doesn't trust God. What God is not saying is, Oh, if only they had a king, they would have been righteous. No, no, no. no. Gideon was a king. His son Abimelech was king. Moses was like a king. Joshua is kind of like a king. They've already had kings. And God has made it very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what God is saying is because they didn't serve Yahweh as their king, they did what was right in their own eyes. What God is saying is that only when you submit to him as king that you're truly going to experience blessings. Yet in the midst of this cultural and moral chaos is the story of Ruth. Another foreigner, like Rahab, Ruth sees the picture of God in the life of Naomi. And she's willing to sacrifice everything for Naomi. And Naomi's willing to sacrifice everything for Ruth. This is a beautiful picture of not only what love, chesed, the Hebrew word for love here, is, but what it means for the foreigner who's come into the covenant by faith, and the biological descendant of Abraham, who is a part of the covenant of faith, what it means for them to be united together and united with Yahweh. And then Boaz comes and redeems them both. And so Yahweh uses Ruth to take care of Naomi. And Yahweh uses Naomi to take care of Ruth. And Yahweh uses Boaz to take care of both of them. So they're all being taken care of. And as they selflessly sacrifice their own desires to serve the other, then when they're all doing that, they're all serving each other and everybody's taken care of. The beauty of selflessness is if everybody's being selfless, you have more people taking care of you than you do when you're selfish and you're only looking out for yourself. Which can sound a little selfish, but that's just the beauty of community. Eventually, Boaz and Ruth married. And Yahweh used them to continue the line of Judah. That very line that God said, out of Judah will come the Messiah, who will bring life and joy and bring a destruction to the enemies. And God used their incredible faithfulness and self-servanthood, self-sacrifice, in order to continue this line. In fact, the beautiful picture of this is Boaz is actually a descendant of Rahab, which means Boaz is part Gentile 
and part Israelite, which means he's half and half himself. And then he redeems. He marries Ruth, the foreigner, who is a Gentile, and takes Naomi and redeems her land, who is the Israelite, and brings them together into the same family that is his. So that they both, the foreigner and the Israelite, are living under his headship in the promised land of blessing, redeemed together as a community. What are we told in the the genealogies of Jesus? That Tamar, the Canaanite that Judah had a kid with, that continued the line of Christ, is in his genealogy. Rahab, who is the Canaanite who married into Israel, is in the genealogy of Christ. And and now Ruth, who is the Moabite, married into the genealogy of Christ. These three women are the only women in the genealogy of Christ, and they're all foreigners, which means Christ himself is not 100% Jewish. He's part Gentile and part Jews. And then we're told that he came to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles together into one covenant people. Boaz, his life is pointing towards Christ. As a little mini kinsman redeemer, Christ is going to become the macro kinsman redeemer. This is all pointing towards Christ. Yet, despite Israel's gross immoral unfaithfulness, Yahweh continued to honor his promises and develop his plan of redemption for all the nations through the nation of Israel. And what we keep seeing in the Joshua and Judges is the continual pattern of we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yet despite that, God chooses to redeem us and use us in the redemption of other people, and he continues to develop his plan of redemption in the Garden of Eden to restore it. And sometimes they're incredible faithful people like Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, and sometimes they're horribly despicable people like Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Yet despite that, he uses them all to develop his plan. Because one, God can use anything in his creation, whether it's broken or whole, because it's his. And two, nothing stops the word of God. Nothing stops the word of God. Not even our sinful.